This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Cindy McCain discusses family, country, and her life with her late husband, Republican Senator John McCain of Arizona. She's interviewed by Joseph Lieberman, former U.S. Senator and year 2000 Democratic Vice Presidential nominee. Welcome, everybody. It's a great pleasure for me to uh, have been asked to have this conversation with Cindy McCain about her new book, Stronger. (laughs) And uh, um, I I must, uh, full disclosure, I am not a dispassionate, neutral interviewer. Uh, The friendship of John and and Cindy McCain for my wife, Hadassah, and me is really one of the blessings of our life. So that that, uh, has to be said. But um, uh, I love this book. I actually read it. We used to have a joke on Capitol Hill before a member of Congress publishes a book, he or she has to read it. <laughs> but, I <did. laughs> but I did read it, and uh, I loved it. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable story in which you tell a lot of stories and portray sides of John McCain that, um, particularly during difficult times in your life because of an illness or something, where um, he was uh, not only a very devoted, but a word that <laughs> people didn't associate with him, but I saw it in him all the time. He was tender. He was uh, very caring. Uh, we also see a lot of uh, examples of his extraordinary uh, tenacity, principle, courage, and humor. Uh, but this is really a story about a book about you. It's, it's your book. And um, you pay great tribute to John McCain. Uh, but, you know, I looked at the title at the beginning, Stronger, and it didn't sink into me. And then when I finished the book, I said, wow, this, is a, this book shows how one person, Cindy McCain, really got stronger over her life. She was tested. She had opportunities that people never have. Uh, she came from strength in her own family, and she just got stronger. And now, uh, in this very difficult period after John's death, uh, she's shown her strength and her uh, capacity to carry on. So, to, to me, it was a wonderful book. It was fun to read. Um, it was great to be with John and you through your eyes. Uh, but it was also inspirational, so I, I hope people will buy it. So let's let me let me start my neutral questioning now. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, for a lot of people, they will learn more about you than they knew before. Uh, maybe some people in Arizona have known, but um, talk about your family, about your mom and dad, uh, and the influence that they had on you uh, growing up. Uh, as their child. Well, I first of all, thank you for having me. I'm grateful that you're the interviewer today, and I'm grateful for CNN or C-SPAN. I apologize for having us on. Um, but to begin with, first of all, I'm not neutral either, as you said. Said I love the, the Lieberman family, and uh, they've been such good friends to us for so many years. I'm grateful for the friendship. I really am. You know, my, my mom and dad were the, a lot 
lot like many parents in those days. Uh, they came from absolutely nothing. They were dirt poor, both of them. Uh, my dad's uh, be- became a pilot during World War II and and was actually a bombardier on B-17s, which was as you know, everyone's seen or read about or seen the movie Memphis Bell. It's uh, it was an amazing time, and he's actually I think very lucky to have lived through it because a lot of them, I think two thirds of them, did not live through it. So, uh, so he, he, with that said, and that's the reason I bring it up is because it, it, it began his quest when he came back to Arizona, he was was in Arizona, he went to school in Arizona. And so when he came back from the war, uh, and then, and began to build this business with my mother, they're both tough people and tough, strong people. And what it said to me was though, because he always felt that the greatest thing that he ever did was to serve his country. Uh, he built this amazing business, a corporation that's huge now. And, and, uh, but to him, the finest thing he ever did was serve. It says a lot about the man. And I think it said a lot about the lessons he tried to teach me. Um, my mother was also, she's a Southern Belle. And my dad brought her to Arizona in the 40s, <laughs> which is probably pretty terrifying when she got off the train. Sure. But, but they were both... Um, very, very, not just tough people, that's an understatement, actually, but very strong and very thoughtful in how they lived, uh, which was was lovely. Sounds great. Am I right? You, uh, I know I am, but you were an only child? Mm-hmm. I am an only child. So do you have any reflections on that? Was it good? Was it tough? Uh, well, at the time, I didn't know any different, but I, I look at it now. Um, I had, you know, I had friends, obviously, I had a very, uh, no complaints in my life with my parents at all. Uh, but I knew that when I got married, I wanted a lot of kids. I loved the commotion. Uh, I loved you know, everything about that, not just the kids themselves, but everything that surrounds, you know, a large family. And I remember my mother coming into my, to the kitchen of our house and this, you know, there's four of them and it's complete chaos. And she would just stand up against the wall and say, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> and she was, so I, she was a mother of one. And I think that was what she wanted. And she got, and she had a very shy daughter. So that I was very quiet at home. So I didn't make much noise or chaos. Yeah. I'm, I'm laughing at that story particularly because, you know, uh, our youngest child, Hani, Mm-hmm. have five little boys, one to ten. Oh, boys. And, oh. <laughs> and uh, when we go there, we say to her exactly that. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> but we're, 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 we're glad to be the grandparents. We go, we leave, we come back, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great little boys. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about your uh, father and the way he started that business, um, You mentioned, I didn't know you and John when he first ran for office in Arizona, but apparently the the media or the opponents attacked you as a beer heiress. Like, Mm -hmm. like you know, one of the uh, (laughs) royalty families. And uh, this was a business your dad, who had nothing really, started. And based on his own ability and drive, he built it in. 
Daughter you know, my parents, like the stories that so many people of that day, as you know, my parents scraped together $10,000. They sold everything they had. They borrowed money. They, uh, you know, all the things, you know, everything that you do to try to scrape by, by the money. And the guy that was selling, the, he sold the line to my dad, which was Anheuser-Busch. So I don't want this thing. It'll never go anywhere. And so sold it to my dad for $10,000. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> It's a great story. I don't want to digress too much, but uh, on one of our trips with John and Lindsey Graham, the three amigos, as General David Reyes called us, we were joking about the fact that Lindsey's father owned a saloon and I think the liquor store together in Carolina. My dad owned a liquor store, although in Connecticut, they dressed it up and called it a package store. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, to John, you know, it's a good thing you married Cindy because in your own background, you have no connection with the business. So, with the business, I know. <laughs> I know. And the story about the, the initial investment, my my dad worked in a factory because it was the, the Depression when he met my mother. Uh, two of her brothers-in-law were in liquor stores, so they uh, encouraged him to go into the business. And the, fa- the family said... This was the 30s. He had $25 a week before they would let him marry my mother. <laughs> so this was actually a great incentive system. But the same thing, he'd buy a case of beer, a case of liquor. He'd sell them, then buy two cases. and you know. Until, yeah, exactly. And it ended up being successful. And, you know, he sent my... I my totally, it's, it's a great story. It's a great American story is what it is. You know, it, it's truly only in America kind of thing. Yeah. Amen. Okay, so let's jump forward a little bit. And I love the story, which people you tell, but a lot of people watching probably don't know about how you met John McCain. Mm, yeah. You know, it's I had reached a point in my life, I finished graduate school and was teaching. I was teaching special ed. And I really kind of had enough of dating and, you know, all these losers from college and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I just didn't want to, I was tired of it and I didn't really, didn't really like who I'd met. Anyway, so I had decided I wasn't going to date. I wasn't going to get married. That was it. Just done. Going to figure out something else here. And literally like two months later, I'm with my parents. We were in Hawaii on spring break because I was teaching. And uh, we were invited to a party that was being held by SyncPAC, the SyncPAC Admiral, though my dad knew the Admiral. And we were invited to go. And uh, I, I saw this guy across the room was, that was in dress whites and thought, oh, oh, no. <laughs> and evidently, from what Jill Biden describes, he said the same thing about me. So, Because so, Jill was with John. Jill was standing there with John when he saw me. Um, yeah, we, we met quite suddenly in Hawaii, and it was the uniform. The uniform did it all. <laughs> I loved it when you said at, at that point that a lot of the guys, you weren't interested in a lot oh, of the guys dating you because they were silly. They weren't serious. and uh, They were very silly, yeah. yeah. They were frat guys, kind of. I mean, I just was not interested. And, and John was, yeah. you know. Among other things, not only I didn't know anything about him, I didn't know who he was, right. um, but but this he was, was after he had been a POW. Yeah, he was home from 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 being a POW, but I, um, I he was so interesting to talk to 
because he was so smart and he, he was well-read and he was someone like, uh, to me, it was like, oh, I really can talk about things with this gentleman that are really important things. And he was so fascinating that it was just, I could, I, I, I went back on my word. I married him. <laughs> well, great. It was great for him. And, uh, and I think for you too. Um, tell me about when you dated, um, or I guess early in your marriage, did he talk to you about hoping to go into a public service at some point in politics? You know, when I met him and married him, he was a captain in the Navy. And so we, we had assumed that he would go on to a command of some kind, hopefully make admiral, those kinds of things. And kind of that was where my head was. I assumed I had married a naval officer and that was where it was. And of course, fitness reports and everything else come out and he was unable to command because of his injuries in Vietnam. So he decided to get out. And that was when, so it was about a year after we'd gotten married. That was when he thought, I may, I may want to do this. Now, how do we go about this? And of course, I said, we're going home to Arizona. <laughs> I didn't give him an opportunity to choose any place else. And so we yeah. went home and that's where it began. I mean, he literally, much like my dad with his business, John did with a campaign. He started from nothing. And, and Claude that's, a, that's a great comparison. Also, John didn't really have a settled home because his family no. had moved no. around. Fortunately, of course, when he was in the military, right. uh, he moved around. And as he famously said when they challenged him in Arizona that he was a carpetbagger, he said, you know, he's part of a military family, Navy family, moved around. Probably the place he lived longest was in the Hanoi Hilton. Which Hanoi. Really got it right- cut them up pretty quick. <laughs> Shout out to the opponents, for sure. So I think it was just comfortable for him, obviously, because it was your home to go back to Arizona and uh, and run from there. So um, he first got elected to the House of Representatives. There was a a seat. And um, you made an interesting decision, which I think either at that point or a little bit later, you say in your own way, you were as um, sort of independent-minded and unconventional as John, in the sense that while a lot of the uh, uh, spouses, and they were mostly wives, obviously, then, uh, the male members of Congress were, were, were living in Washington, you decided to um, be in Arizona. So why, why don't you tell us about that decision and um, how you made it and, and how it worked out. Well, when John first ran, uh, we had no children uh, for, for the house. Uh, the during that during that time frame and, and when he was running for the second term, uh, we had Megan, and both of us knew that uh, I what little experience I had in Washington, but he had much more than I did because he'd worked here. Uh, He knew this was not a good place to raise a family doing what we would be doing. And which at that point he was in the house of representatives and we both wanted our kids were priorities. And so we made the decision that I would stay out West and that he would come home every weekend. And that's exactly what he did. The Mm -hmm. only time he ever missed coming home while the kids were growing up was to, to perhaps go on a, a, a trip or something, but it was very minimal. He was always home. And I don't think, the kids ever felt like he was had neglected them or anything like that. Cause we, yep. we, I staged it like 
your dad's deploy. That was how I put it in Washington. And he's serving this country. You'll see him, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was actually the best move we ever made because our kids were, are all came out normal, you know, and they're all great kids, all different, you know, very diverse. And, and we're very fortunate to have a, have a great family. Well, you are fortunate, but you helped to make it happen. And uh, you do have great kids. And it, it's very, it was very clear to me always uh, how uh, devoted they were to you and John and how grateful they were uh, because you were always there, but John made them feel um, that he was there too. Uh, and I know when we traveled together a lot, he, he, part of the time, he'd call you, of course, but he'd also call uh, the kids. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. he was on that. Uh, uh, all the, around. <laughs> all, the the uh, cell phone, it wasn't much of an emailer, John McCain. No, no, never. No. The cell phone was invented for him, really. Yeah, he, he was. He, uh, <laughs> he did a lot. So um, uh, great kids, and they carry on now, each in their own way. They do. They, they carry uh, on. What, what you and John uh, taught them. So, uh, uh, 1986, I believe, Barry Goldwater, the famous great Barry Goldwater, yeah. uh, decides not to run again, and John decides to uh, seek that seat, and uh, he won. Uh, and you go to Washington. I was really, uh, maybe John told me this story once, but uh, I must have forgotten it, or maybe he didn't, which is that. The first uh, couple in Congress and the Senate to invite you to their home was Joe and Jill Biden. Yes. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. That was actually in the House because uh, John had traveled with Joe on certain trips, as, as you know, he was Navy liaison. Um, right. So, yes, we, he, they were the very first couple to invite us in. And that was that meant a lot to me because I was you know, I was very shy. And also this town was a bit, you know, it's a bit like drinking from a fire hose when you move to Washington, D.C. So for me, it was such a steep learning curve. And I was grateful for their friendship. And they were very nice and very kind to me. And uh, it was it was the kind of thing you never forget, because you come become great friends. As you know, this town is is a company town. And it's, uh, it's important, I think, to not only make friends but to keep friends especially in the same body that you're working in because as you, i know you know but, but hopefully our readers will figure out the senate the senate family which is how i always considered it it's a very close-knit family and so to to be able to not just have them as friends but you all and others through the years have been has just been a, such a blessing for us and for me especially yeah that's such an important point i, I sometimes would say that to people, two things. One is, uh, beneath all the headlines and the great debates and everything, in one way, the Senate is 100 people going to work in the same place every day. And um, the extent to which you get on with your colleagues, they like you, they trust you, uh, really affects how successful you can be as a senator. In the old days, as you all know, Maybe a little bit was still existing when you arrived in the mid 80s, but it sure changed. Uh, members of Congress would stay there um, pretty much in May or June, and they'd have a lot of time to socialize, spend with each other. 
Um, that changed. So, and, and that was something lost. Maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, Cindy, but um, you comment in the book some about um, the way in which Washington and relations among members of uh, Congress, Senate particularly, changed over the uh, many years that John was a member. I think it would be interesting for people. It, you know, it, the Senate in the, in the early years, I mean, I was witness to so many incredible things that occurred, uh, but many of them had to do with bipartisanship. And I would watch not just John, but other members as well, work across the aisle for the good of the country. Now, mind you, they would fight. Uh, the, the famous fights that John used to have with, with Ted Kennedy, you know, are infamous. But they, it was never personal. And so as the years have waned on, and I know you saw that as well, we've seen such a, a kind of a, a, a in my, my opinion, just kind of a, a, a deepening a deep divide in the Senate that's not healthy. And it's also not civil and kind. And the things that we all stood for and that you all, especially the members, stood for, um, which which has been hard to watch, really. Uh, especially, I think, especially since John's death, that has certainly been very, very, very clear. Um, but, but, you know, I think the, the one thing I would like to remind readers, too, as they read some of this, is that, is that, I believe in the faith of America, and I believe that the Senate, this pendulum that we're in right now, is going to swing back the correct way because that's what we do. That's what Americans do. And so, I'm. I just hope that uh, that as people read the book, that they understand it. I, I can tell these stories of path bygones, you know, <laughs> in the days gone by. Uh, but that that the the truth of the matter is, I believe that America will swing back uh, to a more civil society. Yeah, that comes through in your writing in the book, Cindy. It's a really important message. And, of course, I I agree with you. And I, I love what you said about John and Ted Kennedy. They could fight back uh, or like hell. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they were friends. And I, 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 I just was saying to people, um, we're, we need more centrism in American politics. And I don't mean moderation. Uh, obviously, people want to be moderates, they'll be. But when I say centrist, I mean, somebody, Democrat, Republican, left, right, the, the critical question to me today is, are you willing to come to the center, negotiate, and I'm going to use the word you use, because it's important in a civil way, a respectful way, with your colleague on the other side, compromise and get some things done. And Ted Kennedy was a liberal Democrat. John McCain was a conservative Republican. But they were both centrists when they wanted to be. Probably John even more than Teddy. But both, <laughs> but both of them, uh, and Kennedy was really amazing in this. He, When he wanted to come to the center and get something done, uh, and it started a lot with the people on his committee, whether it was Orrin Hatch or Mike Enzi or Judd Gregg, all conservative Republicans, uh, he, he would figure it out and they'd negotiate compromise and get some big things done. Yeah. That made me uh, feel a little bit better, even though no side got 100% of what they wanted. So uh, it, John was wonderful at that. I mean, that's part of how we developed our friendship. It started, I think we first sort of met each other, knew each other, worked together during 
the uh, debate over the Gulf War of 1991, President Bush, and it broke too much party lines, but a group yeah. of us, Republicans and Democrats, worked together. And then, I mean, I, I, a story that I tell people about John, and I'll do this real quickly, after his 2000 presidential campaign, he stopped me on the floor, which is where we, a lot of the time we talk, and he said, you know, uh, during my presidential campaign, people asked me about climate change, and I just realized that I, I, I wasn't giving a good answer because I don't know much about the subject, and uh, I know you've been interested in this. Maybe we can work together on it. Well, we worked together, our staff did, and we put in, out a good climate change bill, three sessions in a row that we didn't get 60 votes, but we got about 55 or 56, yeah. and very soon they'll come back. But that was John. Okay, let, let's go. Um, uh, let's go back, and, and I want to be a little more personal now. You were very personal in this book about challenges you had along the way. I mean, just as human nature, the way it is in a life, you had some health problems, you had knee, you had back surgery, et cetera, hysterectomy. But really what I think took a lot of courage for you was to uh, talk, as you have before, but talk very clearly in this book, about a period of time where you were addicted to opioids and uh, how you uh, ultimately um, uh, broke away from it. Really remarkable, uh, uh, to use a a colloquial term, cold turkey in a way. Um, But as you look at this, I think is the reason I admire you, Cindy, for telling that story, which you don't have to, is that it's probably going to be and has been very helpful to people. We all know people in our family or friends who've been uh, addicted in one to one thing or another uh, to, to deal with it. Uh, it's human nature in a way, and uh, to figure out how to break away from it. So, when you look back, how do you explain to yourself because you're so disciplined and so sort of healthy-minded? Um, how you work, became addicted, and then how'd you break out of it that way? Who who talked to you to to to, to wake you up and, and get you to break away from the opioids? Well, you know, for 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 me and for millions of other people that have suffered or are suffering right now, um, it's it's a addiction's a very cunning enemy. It slips in and takes you down before you know what's happened. And in those days, especially in the very beginning, I'd had various, I had a couple surgeries and some other stuff. Painkillers were easy and doctors would hand them out like they were candy. And I'm not faulting the doctors right now. So please don't misunderstand me. But, but it was too easy. And a lot of times in those days, also physicians would talk to a woman and say, oh, you're just neurotic, or you need to go, I'm, this happened to me is why I can say that you're neurotic, go home and have a drink, or, you know, uh, you know, or, or, or here, take these pills, this will be better. And so instead of really addressing whatever issue it may be, um, you're, you're masking it with the with pills and with, and with other things. And that's exactly what happened to me. And before I knew it, I was completely, uh, you know, completely down the spiral right in the middle of it. Um, but but with, with that, there was a complication and and this is to me is very unique. Others it's not, but it is certainly in their own lives because, uh, 
uh, shame is a large part of this because when you are addicted to something like this and you know it's wrong, you know you're sick, you know you've got to stop, um, uh, shame, being shamed for it is the worst thing you can do to someone who's suffering. And in my case, it happened, you know, all over. It was worldwide news when it broke. And that was hard because it can, it did not in my case, but it can drive someone back under the shame factor can take them right back down and possibly hurt them even worse or end their lives as a result of it. And so, so I, what I had to learn was, is that number one, don't listen to the media, which is a big lesson to learn early on. But number two, um, I can do it. I can stop this. I had the power and I knew in my own head that I had to, and I had four children. I couldn't, you know, I just had too much going on. But as I explained in the book, it was also hard because um, I didn't tell John. John never knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm not, please don't anyone ever think that John was somehow inattentive or, or didn't care or anything. That's not the case. You become very good at hiding it when you're addicted. There, mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I was a master at hiding it. And so it's, it's tough. It's a very tough, tough problem. Um, it's something that we as Americans have got to deal with directly and more importantly women's health is is what this is about and making sure that women are perceived and talked to and dealt with from a medical standpoint in in an adult fashion that's helpful to them and not you know go home and have a drink kind of thing good for you uh two things one is i was quite taken with the story that your parents really were the ones yeah, my mom and dad. Yeah, they came to me. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell that story because it's yeah. really... My mom and dad, my mom's, I think more than my dad, but they both sensed something was wrong with me, that I wasn't right in some way or another. And they came to me, they confronted me. And it was that night, the day, the, the evening that they confronted me, I stopped cold turkey. I never, never picked up another pill, nothing. Um, and I did go into rehab after that as a result of it. Um, they were, I, I'm so, was so grateful for, for not just for them talking to me, but, but uh, making me see myself what was going on. Sometimes addicts have to be confronted with what their lives are doing, not just to themselves, but to other people. And yeah. so my, my parents are very good at that. Look, you're the um, hero of, the, of that story because it, it uh, takes uh, tremendous strength and courage to do what you did to break the addiction. But I wanted you to tell that story because um, it's very important to family members like your parents or friends. If they're worried about somebody who's in their family or a friend of theirs who they think may be addicted to something, it's really important to, to do what's awkward. I, I remember back years ago, I had somebody I worked with who I believe had become alcoholic. Yeah. And uh, he would sometimes not show up to meetings with, without an excuse. And I actually began to see his handshake. And I just didn't want to say it to him. And I was yeah. wrong. Somebody else who worked with him uh, said to him, worked with us really, hey, you, you're becoming an alcoholic. You're going to kill yourself. And it woke him up, and he went into AA, and, you know, thank God, he, he really was, was fine. Yeah. But it took yeah. somebody else it did. Uh, it did. to do that. Uh, and, and that is a kind of 
shame, not like public shame, but oh, it's, 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 yeah, it's shame. I'm what sure mom and dad said that because you, you were a good child and you probably felt, and you wanted to make them proud. That's the way we right. are. Felt you would let them down and embarrass them. And you want, yeah. You want and my, in my case to excuse me for interrupting, but in my case, especially I wanted to, because I was being told, uh, through the media, in books, you know, society in general, that as a wife, you had to be perfect. You know, I, and I put extra pressure on myself to make sure that, that, I, that I would be perfect. You would entertain correctly. You would have help your husband's career in whatever way. You've got your kids. They have to be perfectly groomed. You know, all the things that a wife and a mother and a woman puts sure. on herself. And that was all part of this. It was all me trying to be perfect instead of realizing that no one's perfect. Yeah. No one's perfect. Well, so those are powerful words. Yeah. And really, really important that people would hear them or read them in the book. Um, I was quite touched uh, when you described John's reaction, both when he uh, found out about, when you told him about the opioid addiction, also later on you suffered a stroke. And uh, those are, when I used the word tender at the outset, also uh, loyal and devoted. Uh, it, was, it, it completes a picture of John McCain that people who watched him publicly yeah. uh, probably didn't, couldn't so fill it. didn't see that. About that a little bit, because it, it's really, what you did yeah. was for his memory. Well, John was, uh, you know, was the kind of guy that, like you said, his outward persona was strong and tough. Right. And, you know, he's the guy that's going to, going to help us win or, you know, whatever the issue may be. Um, and he wasn't, he was a wonderful husband. And in those moments where I felt like I had totally let him down and that I was just going to, you know, I would just in the deepest, darkest part of my life at that point, um, John was not only tender, but he was, you know, we, we're going to do this together. We're going to, we're, we're a team. We're going to, we're going to fix this in whatever way it was. And that's indeed what he did. He never left my side. And so uh, for me to, to uh, the realization that it was okay to bother him, does that make sense? I mean, he was, gee, he was a sitting U.S. Senator and I didn't want to bother him. And that's the way wrong thing to do. Of course I should bother him. He was my husband, but I had, you know, I was had wrapped up in this perfection and this persona of not letting him see what was really going on. Yeah, it's a great story, and it uh, it ended happily. It but did. He, he rose to the challenge. Thank God. So let's talk about another uh, sillier side of McCain's life. Uh, he he loved to tell jokes. <laughs> and, and you and I both know, and we look at each other sort of as fellow sufferers. When John had a joke that worked, he told it over. And over. And over. And over. <laughs> so, just asking you if you had some favorites of his. That, uh, oh, I loved his Irish joke, you know, the, the Irish twins. I love the, you know, I mean, all that stuff. He, he was so funny and so good. I know you remember that the press made a T-shirt during the 08 race that had all these jokes on the back of it. I mean, it, that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, quite frankly, because they knew him like we did, too. So, so John, you know, John was was so good at, at using humor 
and at and believing in humor. I mean, of, of all people who had had the right to just simply be grumpy at the world, he wasn't. And right. he was he was some someone with great strength and great uh, and great humility as a result of it. And the humor came in to. Uh, came into this. I, I believe during the POW years, I think humor became an even stronger influence on him. And as you know, you know, at the, it could be a tough time and he'll pop in with some joke or something and just bam, uh, <laughs> everything's better again. I know, I know he did that beautifully. That's interesting what you just said about the POW years. I bet you're right because uh, the one time I went to Hanoi with him um, as we landed and he was looking out the uh, airplane window he seemed to be a deep in thought and then he said to me i want to prepare you if they recognize me on the street there's going to be an unusual reaction oh it's yeah sure (laughs) enough here we are at the hanoi hilton now a museum and there's a group of college students vietnamese and they recognize him and they start to chant mccain 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 Mm -hmm. And they want photographs and autographs. Oh. So after they left, we got in the car to go to our next stop. And I said, what the hell was that? <laughs> so, yeah, he said, well, there's two reasons. Uh, one is that they think, because they've been told, that I was treated a lot better here as a prisoner of war than I really was. And I'm sure that was true. The second was that he... Uh, with John Kerry, became the leaders in the uh, effort that ended up in law and diplomatic relations to essentially reconcile America's relations with Vietnam. And and they remembered it. And and because he had jokes, too. You know, everybody always called him a hero, except for a few strange people who we won't mention who were not president. (laughs) But... uh, um, uh, he would always say, what kind of hero am I? I, I flew my plane into a missile, you know? <laughs> and of, course, right. of course, he was a hero. So um, and in that way, militarily, you know, all the stories that everybody knows, but also just in his daily life, he really stood up. For, you know, for, the, the, you bring up something with either walking with him or traveling with him or being around him in Vietnam is very surreal because... <laughs> Standing at his monument on West Lake, and it's a bit like being with the Rolling Stones. I mean, you you know, people a huge crowd, people chanting, people. The, you know, he he took the family to Vietnam several times uh, yeah. on more than one family trip, and it was like it was it was like being with a rock band going across the you know on a bus tour. <laughs> they follow us everywhere. It was great. Hey, so incidentally, we were at that monument they built at the lake. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's classic, John. He said, hey, Joey, don't you think this monument is a little small when you think about what's true here? <laughs> so, I, of course, I'm, uh, you know, he inspired me to be outrageous. So we, next time we met with some high Vietnamese official, I said, you know, sir, we went to the monument. And really, John McCain deserves something much bigger. Than what <laughs> and anyway, he laughed. Um, Cindy, along the way, uh, in addition to supporting John, traveling with him, et cetera, around the world, um, you also developed some real uh, public interest service passions of your own, such as 
human trafficking and uh, human rights. And uh, I, I wanted, and you talk about them in the book, which is very important because it's an important part of you. And of course, you continue on with it. Uh, um, talk about how you got into human trafficking and human rights, and uh, maybe what you're doing now to advance those really important causes. Well, a story I tell in the book about how I first came, at least I was cognitive that I first came, first came up upon human trafficking was when I was, I was in Calcutta and had been visiting Mother Teresa and I uh, came out, was, I was in a kiosk, I was buying some sari material for my daughter Bridget to bring home and uh, I was getting ready to pay in the small kiosk. You know, Calcutta is a crazy place with noise and smells and dust and everything going on. And I looked down, I just happened to look down and the floorboards and the floor were kind of wide apart. And uh, I saw, you know, I, I heard some rumblings and you can kind of see people moving around. And, and I asked the, the manager, the cute little kiosk uh, man, and he said, well, that's my family. We live below live below this store and in a uh, very plausible i mean i completely you know that's something could very easily be happening and i looked again though back down before i left and there were all these little eyes looking up at me they were children and something didn't work with me something told me it was wrong there was something bad going on i didn't know what it was so i came home and and began the years of, of really trying to understand what was going on and then what to do about it and finding, discovering like everyone else, it's worldwide, it's an epidemic, it's, you know, all the things we talk about. And so human, human trafficking is a, is a tough, tough, tough issue. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, and it goes on right under our noses. And like, like so many people, they really don't know what to look for. or don't understand it. So they don't always see it. And that's what I try to do is bring awareness and bring, understanding that this is a basic human rights issue and needs to be dealt with in that way. It's really important. Um, if people want to get involved in trying to work against human trafficking, what, what, what do you say to them? What should they do? Well, I, t I tell them first and foremost, you need to look within your own community. Um, for those, you know, in the beginning of all this, everyone thinks, well, it's happening over there in that case in Calcutta or it's happening in India or it's happening in Vietnam, something like that. But it doesn't go on here. We're in America. It doesn't happen here. It happens in every neighborhood. You have seen it. You just didn't know what you were looking at. So what I try to do in the course of the awareness programs that the McCain Institute does and others is help people look with better eyes to see exactly what's going on in their own communities. And then I tell them to get involved, uh, do it locally, keep it local, because we have to take care of our own house first. And so uh, I rec you know, so recommend other NGOs and people that are working out there, but I encourage them, I, I encourage everyone to stay local first, because uh, we've got to, we have to stop this. And it, it's something that is happening in your own neighborhood. You just don't know. Yeah, that's a great answer. It's not just over there. It's probably right here. Right. Right here. And uh, right here is where the individual can have the most impact mm -hmm. on something about it. You, you mentioned the McCain Institute. I was going to ask you about that. Um, I, I was uh, really uh, grateful when you and John set it up. I'm proud to be on the board. It really is, I read somewhere, I don't remember who a theologian, 
said that one of the best things somebody can do in life is to create an institution that aims to carry on what the, that people, those, that individual, or in your case, you and John, try to do in your lives. So tell us a little about uh, the McCain Institute, its, um, its university affiliation, and uh, what, it, what it's up to. Well, the McCain Institute was founded by both John and me uh, just after the 2010 race. We began to, John had, had wanted to think about his legacy a little bit, think about how we could give back to Arizona and to the nation. And his Senate papers, all the things that come into play with, with this. And we are affiliated through Arizona State University and have a great working relationship with them. But it's about John's legacy. It's about the ideals and the the the, the things that meant the most to John and to me. But but from, from his standpoint, it was things like next generation leadership it was very always very important to John. He was always a great mentor to young people. And that's what the Institute does. It also, we work on human rights, freedom of the press, rule of law, uh, of course, human trafficking. That's a large part of our Institute. And issues that, that really affected what John considered social justice in terms of doing right by human beings. And, and um, we're doing very well. We're, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong, independent organization. As you know, we are action-based. We are not a think tank. We get in there and actually implement what we're working on. And that's what John wanted. He wanted action. He wanted, don't sit around and talk about it. Let's do it. And so, uh, so it's, I'm charged now with making sure that we keep that alive and keep his legacy going. Yeah, you've done really well with it. And uh, it survived uh, all the pressures of the pandemic. And I yeah, think it did. Like our country, it's going to now come out uh, stronger than ever. So um, we've got a little more time, not a lot. Uh, step back a little bit. And uh, while we're talking about John, and I'll get to you, what, what do you think uh, and hope his legacy uh, will be uh, from his life? I, I think his, his honesty, his honor, he lived by the code of conduct, the way he led his life is what he will be remembered for and how he, his, the ideals that he believed in and stood for, he worked on in his public service, either in the Navy or certainly within the United States Senate. Um, he's remembered for many things, many good things, many, many great things. But I think most importantly, that he really, he wanted to be remembered as someone who just really tried to do right. And boy did, boy, did he. I think he did more than just do right. He did. He was right at the middle of so many important things. I was thinking the other day yeah. about, well, there's talk now about having a, an independent nonpartisan commission to investigate the events at the Capitol on yeah. January 6th. And I'll never forget, after 9-11, uh, you know, it was very similar. Uh, uh, obviously, it was a different kind of attack on America, but uh, many more lives lost, of course. But uh, in, in Washington, the administration was talking about doing its own investigation. Congress was beginning to break on party lines to do investigation. John and I happened to be in the green room at Beat the Press, NBC Studios out on Nebraska Avenue in Washington one Sunday morning going on 
with Tim Russert, and we, we talked, we both had the same feeling, and he said, this is the man of action, that's why it made me think about it. Hey, why don't we put in a bill to create an independent nonpartisan commission? Yes. That's a great idea, and our staff strapped it up. A week or two later, we put it in. It became the 9-11 Commission, uh, which it took a while to get it back. The administration thought uh, we were trying to make them look bad, but when they finally realized that we weren't, they adopted it. Governor Kane and, and Congressman right. did a great job, nonpartisan. And uh, most of its recommendations were adopted. Part of the reason, I think, why we haven't been hit again like we were on 9-11. But anyway, that was John. Uh, action. And um, uh, and that's that's you. <laughs> I was just telling somebody a story. I, I'm wondering quickly. Uh, after we finally adopted the 9-11 Commission, mm-hmm. um, the, the Senate basically had gone into those last that last week when most people have gone home and a few people hang around, uh, make speeches on the floor. John and I were involved in a colloquy of some kind on the floor on some subject. And but you still can pass things, but it has to have agreement by everybody in the House and the Senate because most people have gone home. So. Our staffs come over and tell John and me that um, had Benny Hastert or somebody in the House Republican leadership was holding up funding for the 9-11 Commission investigation. So, you know, John, how he got like, I'm going to take care of this. Come with me, Joey. Go go to the Republican cloakroom. He's asked the clerk to get Hastert. (laughs) I'm going to clean this. A little bit. <laughs> he said, Denny, I understand you're holding up the bill to fund the 9-11 commission. And uh, I just want you to know uh, and remind you, you got a lot of bills the House is going to send over to the Senate that will only pass if nobody objects. And uh, I want you to know that Joe Lieberman and I are going to be on the floor 24 hours a day. And unless you pass that funding bill, we're going to object, one of us, to every <laughs> blank. <laughs> I hung up the phone. I said, uh, I, I, I said, all I could do was give the guy a hug and laugh like hell. And <laughs> in 30 minutes, um, uh, Haster passed the funding bill in the house. Funding bill. <laughs> <laughs> the White House. And John and I went home. So uh, that was uh, that was great. Okay, let's go back to this book, Stronger, because it's your book. As I said at the beginning, it's about you. When you first met John, you say at some point, you wondered how could he be uh, interested in you, you know, with all he had done and all that. Yeah. And of course, go on, it's very, it's very clear how he was interested in you. It also becomes quite clear, and I can tell you, because I spent so much time with him, how not only how much he loved you, but how dependent he was on you, uh, which came out in a raw kind of un, um, uncovered way in his final months, year of illness, which, and which were so important to him. So, but this is in some ways, uh, it, it's about John, but it's really a woman's book too, and it's a story of one uh, really strong, great woman who got stronger as her life was going on. But I'm, in some ways, I'm answering my question. It may not be right. What okay. do you hope people take away from reading your book, Stronger? 
Well, I hope that people see that I'm a very normal person. I mean, I didn't, just because I was married to a very famous man that, that did great work that I, I suffered from the same issues that everyone else does. I, you know, I was imperfect in many ways, but the discovery as you, as you grow and get older, but the discovery that you are imperfect and that you can make mistakes, that it's okay to make mistakes and learn from them. And, and all those kinds of things are really what this is about. So I'm hoping that people can take away from this that, uh, you know, you've made mistakes, keep, just keep trying, keep going. Uh, there's, there's, there's lots of people around that, that make mistakes and press on and do all the work that they need to do. And that's okay. The perfection that was, that was tossed on women early on. And I, it, it started in the seventies in my opinion about, about this perfection. You have to be perfect. You have to do everything is, is bull. And so I think for those of us who, who, um, have tried uh, tried to live our lives in the best way we can. It's a great learning curve. And so I hope that people enjoy it, number one. I hope they laugh about things. I hope they, they love it. They wind up loving their own lives as a result of it. And, and also, I hope that they know that there's, there's, there's friends out there. There's people that can help people. And, and for me, in that case, it was being able to have friends and being able to open up to people. That I had ne- I've never do that before. And now I have great friendships and, and gr- girlfriends and boyfriends. I mean, not boy boyfriends, but I mean, male friends that are, are good friends of mine. And, um, and it's, it's, I've decided that it's okay to be me. Yeah. Oh, it's better than okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, it was great for John McCain. It's great for a lot of other people like me who got to know you, obviously great for your children and family, but it's going to be great for everybody who reads this book. You really accomplished what you just described as your goals. And, uh, you know, you're an extraordinary person, but in a way, everybody is capable of being extraordinary. And uh, you, you just rose to every challenge in your life. And now you continue on, uh, which is... Um, uh, which is really great. I, I I really thank you for writing the book. It's not easy to write a book. I um, no, it's not. <laughs> and it's, the hard part also is the audio portion. That's when it really gets tricky. <laughs> and I, and I actually got to read it out loud. So uh, I once read, and I forgot which great writer said this, uh, but he, but he said, "I do not enjoy writing. I enjoy." Having written, final one. I happened to be in Israel several years ago when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's father died, and he was uh, in the period of mourning, sitting in the mourning period of his father's apartment in uh, Jerusalem. His father was a great Zionist hero and academic, and. Uh, so I naturally try to comfort Bibi by saying, "What a what a comfort! What a what a dream it must have been for your father." So committed to Israel, you became prime minister. You're, what a legacy you gave him! And he waved his hand across the coffee table in front of him. He said, "Well, thank you, Joe, but this is my father's legacy." I hadn't looked at the coffee table, and on the coffee table was the books that his father had written. Really? And you 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 have a legacy. Thank and, you. <laughs> and it's stronger, and it's a great one. So, uh, 
for writing it. Thanks for a wonderful conversation. Oh, it was fun. See you soon. Afterward is a weekly hour-long discussion with current nonfiction authors. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.